0: All right. Yes, here we go again. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Super excited about this episode. I want to talk about Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, and the meaning of resurrection. So, this fits into my series We've Lost the Plot, my biblical series. So, this would be installment number 5. We've Lost the Plot 5. Magdalene and the meaning of resurrection and it's going to be hard to talk about um, the meaning of resurrection. That's a that's what I want to try to get at, and it's not so easy. It's like talking about the the what we mean by God or what we mean by soul. Sort of the death and resurrection or death and rebirth is difficult to talk about. It's complex. It's rich. It's symbolic. It's uh, real on the deepest sense. So therefore, it's really hard to talk about. It's hard to put into words, but we have to talk about the meaning of resurrection, not just whether or not it happened, although I do want to want to try to address that, at least in, in terms of, is that a valid question or not? So that's where I'm going with the, with this podcast. I hope you're enjoying the biblical series, whether you're like into the Bible or not. Um, I'm trying to read these archetypally, symbolically, psychologically, metaphorically, and also occasionally bring in a little cultural background historical information uh and and again these stories make up at least in part the spine of western culture western culture is built upon stories not just laws and ideas and philosophies but stories that and that have been passed on for many generations and yeah we it's the 21st century and part of us is um is coming to terms with this new story that um, we, we might call science, uh, this, the story of science, the story of how things came to be from a scientific perspective. We're just coming to terms with that. It's brand new. I mean, we haven't had hundreds of thousands of years wrestling with, with this as a story. It's It's new on the scene and totally worthwhile. But the background, the backdrop, are the older stories that have worked their way Ways into our psyches that's my basic premise that the biblical stories and not only those but the old stories the ancient stories are part of our psyche it's like there's a labyrinth of images and energies just beneath our waking life so in the unconscious realm in the dream realm that inform who we are in the world connecting us both with our past antiquity and the energies we need to live forward into the world these old stories dip us into that stream the archetypal stream the symbolic stream that has always shaped humanity so when when we let go of the bible say um, or the other great um, wisdom texts we do so at our own peril because uh, even a surface reading a surface reading of the Bible is a conversation about values and how should we live and what does a good society look like and and should we murder people and how should we treat the stranger and the neighbor and and our enemies and so the Bible's talking on that level but it's also talking on the level of the psyche what what's really in there it's Cain and Abel Jacob and Esau Rebecca and Sarah uh, Ruth and Boaz these it's which those characters that I just named reveal on the symbolic level uh, what our own nature is made up of and the things that are, are, are at war within us, We, uh, particularly Cain and Abel. I mean, those are the, some of the most obvious ones. I know those are two male figures, but um, kind of a good boy that follows the rules and, and actually does things well and things go well for him and a side of our psyche that is crouching at the door, that's the language of Cain, And we have the capacity to murder the people that are closest to us. That's a complex view of human beings. And that came through a lot of trial and error and struggle and storytelling and and authenticity and honesty and looking hard in the mirror. That's what wisdom texts do. So that's why I keep returning to these. And also, I think if we're going to continue to evolve as a society and as a culture, whether you're religious or not, we have to always be asking what needs to be integrated and fully owned from our past, not only sort of uh, on the level of the psyche, but just in terms of culture. Um, How did we get here is another way of putting it. And then like a winnowing fan right now in the present moment, what can carry us forward and what maybe can be let go of? It's like every generation has to wrestle with that. But what I think is a great kind of lie happening in our cultures that we can have a clean break just give me science give me facts and I need a clean break from from all of that sort of old mythological stuff just give me the facts and I can proceed that does not work Uh, science as a kind of language and image in a way for understanding what it means to be human absolutely valid and important one of the four quadrants in and uh, that's a reference to Ken Wilber, um, who would say we need all quadrants, all levels. So one of the qu- quadrants is uh, external data and how we deal with that. In other words, scientific information, or what some people might call facts, absolutely essential. But it's a relatively new discipline, science is for sure. And we haven't had thousands of years of the question of how to integrate this. And what's interesting is that science, scientific scientific information, brain chemistry, is um, in conversation with the psychological, with the psyche, with the patterns that we have always known to be true, but largely through story and symbol. So now they're in conversation. In other words, it's a freaking awesome time to be alive. All quadrants, all levels, all disciplines, not that we can be the master of them all, but we have to be asking questions of integration. What's my main point? We can't let go of the bible not really our psyches won't let us anyway that's a, i've already said that or something like that on previous podcasts so maybe it, i'm just repeating myself which that's what the stories do <laughs> okay anyway uh yeah before i get going let me mention a couple things thank you very much for supporting me i just in the last couple of podcasts open up the possibility of supporting this podcast through my website i have a patreon link on there or you can just go to patreon.com forward slash kent dobson and you can support this thing directly which is amazing that that can even happen that there's sort of a relationship between um what you value and the creator i mean it's like the um there's no middle person anymore. It's it's amazing. So if you find some value in this and can have the means to support uh, this podcast, anything helps. In fact, because I've already now have a few Patreon people and um, which I'm really grateful for. So thank you. I've already purchased uh, a better mic. I'm not using it yet. Uh, it's in the mail, but I'm, I want to take some steps toward improving your experience and my experience of doing these in anyway, way, it's just motivating. So um, really, I appreciate it. If you live in the Michigan area, I'm doing a retreat, a day retreat, May 11, from 9 to 3.30 in Ada, Michigan, which is pretty close to my house. And if you want to join a small group of people and do some nature-oriented practices and conversations that are intended to deepen the conversation between your soul who you are on the deeper level and the natural world kind of exchange that takes place. That's the purpose of the retreat. Um, So I invite you to that. You can check it out. Details are on my website. Look under events, I think, is where I put that. Uh, If that interests you, would love to see you along for that. I'll also be posting other summer-oriented retreats and programs in the coming weeks. So you can check that out. Um, Okay. Now, I want to talk about... Magdalene and the meaning of resurrection and I do so with fear and trepidation because I don't know I don't know the meaning of resurrection I know there's meaning there and I know there's an untapped wellspring of meaning of which maybe I've had a few tastes of the surface so it's there it's there to be mined, and also um I was gonna say mind or uncovered, but maybe that's not even how the meaning, the search for the meaning of resurrection goes. Maybe it's maybe it's more like you stumble upon something, or maybe it's more like when something like resurrection is happening in your life, then you realize, yep, it's true. The story is true. It's true on the deepest level. It's it's true beneath the historicity of the actual accounts. However. Every time Easter comes around, somehow the conversation turns toward, did Jesus actually resurrect from the dead or not? I think we've kind of left the question of, was Jesus even a real person? I think any any sane scholar um, and any just, I think, disciplined, ordinary lay person like me, uh, just taking a look at the texts and um, not only in the Bible, but extra sources, with archeology span and so forth, we can say he, he was a real dude. All right. Yeah. He lived, he moved, he walked around, he had disciples. Um, the rough outlines of the story are there. He lived in a real place. Um, which is why you should come with me to Israel sometime and discover what this place is like. And, um, but the, the historicity of the resurrection comes up and generally, I mean, there are two camps, the camp that believes that it happened literally, physically in the body and the camp that says it didn't happen. And how do we know? Because peop- that does, people don't resurrect from the dead. They're dead. They're dead. So the rest of the resurrection stories and accounts are fable or something like that. They may say myth, but I'm, I'm trying to redeem the word myth if you've been paying attention to these podcasts. Um, but let's just call it fable or, um, or fantasy. Fantasy might even be the best kind of derogatory term. So, those are two camps, neither of which I find that compelling. However, I think the question is is still worth asking. I used to try to get around the question by saying that's the wrong question. I wasn't sure quite what the right question was. Same with same with is there an afterlife or not? I thought well that's kind of an exercise in missing the point or an exercise in losing the plot. Um, However any question that that you have that's on the sort of that strikes you deeply like no no this is actually a question i'm i'm really wrestling with is worth wrestling with and i think historical scholarship and the stories themselves they should collide so i'll try to ad- address not so much the answer did he resurrect from the dead or not because my archaeology professor used to always say i don't know i was not there And I guess I would say that was my best impression of his accent. Um, Yeah, I wasn't there. I don't know. I don't know in the way I know if my, you know, kid is uh, a real kid, you know. Well, I've seen my kid. So that kind of thing. So anyway, um, I think I'll try to address maybe the question of how to hold the question, period. And one time I heard... Um, uh, I don't know if any of you listen to Jordan Peterson. I particularly like his stuff on the Bible. He reads it from sort of a Jungian psychological psychological perspective. Amazing. And um but one time he was asked, I heard someone ask him, Are you a believer? And which is a loaded question. Or do you believe in God? I think they asked him. And his response was, It's none of your damn business, you know? <laughs> and I guess this sort of applies you know to this question. Do you believe whether or not Jesus physically resurrected? Well, it's none of your damn business. And anyway, what do my beliefs have to do with the question itself? And I think uh, contemporary religion has put way too much stock in believing or disbelieving things. And and, and I want to come back to that. So my main point is I, I don't want to deride the question. It's worth asking, did it happen? And if so, what, what's the meaning of it happening or, or not happening. Um, but I think in a general sense, we can say, I would say, personally, something happened. And I say that using my historical, critical lens. Something happened. I can't say if it was literal or not. That's beside the point. Something happened in this sense. The disciples, it looks like, even independently, experienced something like a risen Christ, or something of the Christ figure carried them through to the next chapter of the faith story. In fact, you heard me mention on the previous podcast the cycle of belief faith and experience that's what the disciples were going through they believed certain things about Jesus which had to die and go they entered the realm of faith mystery the unknown and they had certain experiences I would say without question the disciples had experiences of a risen Christ I can't say if he was flesh and blood I don't know the nature of these even the gospel accounts this is a funny thing about being a hardcore literalist if you say it has to be a physical resurrection but in the accounts themselves straight from the gospels, it's something other than just physical resurrection or it's physical resurrection and something else. It's mysterious. He's passing through walls yet, yet Thomas can touch the holes in, in Jesus's hands and feet. And, and so it's, it's a, it's a mixture. It's, it's not what we would call sort of our ordinary body. So it's, It's something other, and and the other, I think, is what is important, that they're experiencing something of the mystery of this person uh, living into the future, which changes, I think, the way they relate to Jesus, and, of course, is the very foundation or motivation of them wanting to continue the story. They feel like now they have a story that they can embody and live forward in the world, and it's not just... um, it's not just, hey, those few weird years when we followed that guy around. So what would I say? What am I trying to say? Something happened. The nature of it, we don't know. I don't know I was not there. And and I think getting too bogged down in the physicality, like the molecular level, I think is going down a rabbit hole that probably isn't all that helpful in the end, in my view. And And let me say something else about the kind of, two camps that get created around the question of did it happen or not one is the more traditional literalist reading and that is that it happened it happened the way it said it happened jesus's body physical body got up out of it, the tomb and that's what the disciples including first mary magdalene who i think was a disciple she's not called that but she's certainly among the closest of jesus's followers which makes the, the Gospels uh, r- pretty radical when it comes to the feminine story. And I'll say more about that in a few minutes, I think. Um, but anyway, the literal traditional is that it happened. Well, um, okay, whether you believe it or happened or not, uh, all right, what's the meaning of that? What do you do with something like that? Well, if the point is that it happened, then, then that's all the point is. It's that it happened. And that would be amazing. And even though I tend to be more on the critical side, and and want to ask questions about that, all you can really say is it happened or it didn't. So it's it's a relatively small um, uh, argument. I don't. In other words, I don't think the argument leads to much uh, deeper um, conclusions about the meaning, because the meaning is just that it happened, something like that. I'm, I'm simplifying, but. I'm sort of painting a bit of an extreme version the other the kind of liberal progressive critical historical reading is that it didn't happen and because people don't rise from the dead so at best you can say well maybe it's kind of a metaphor for something but the problem with that approach is that it kind of deflates all the air all right so it didn't happen so they kind of what made this stuff up and now it's kind of metaphoric and we if we just kind of took it metaphorically then uh you know i guess there'd be some meaning there um, that's not too inspiring even though speaking personally i think there are elements of it being symbolic and metaphoric meaning it stands for something it's a symbol or an image of something that is profoundly true but the what, what I'm saying is just in terms of general atmosphere, when you when you turn everything in the Bible just to kind of a acute metaphor, it's there's not really much reason to get very excited about it. It's just like, well, OK. And that's why I don't think both of those camps work. And here's my main point. They're still rooted in the same consciousness and the consciousness consciousness is the level of belief. I believe it happened or I believe it didn't happen. That's pretty low level. It's needed, necessary. I mean, it's part of our own psychological development as children. We come to have beliefs. Some of those beliefs are given to us kind of from our parents, and we don't have that much autonomy in a developing psyche to be very critical about them. So we come to hold more or less many of the views and beliefs that our parents um, are giving us. And um And we have beliefs that get formed in our own experience through traumas, disappointments, joys, hopes. Um, And again, that's why I think belief is fine. It's just a place to start. But believing that something happened or not is still the consciousness of belief. What hasn't changed on that level, there hasn't been what I was calling a move toward faith, toward the unknown, toward the limits of your belief, toward so what. So what if you say, you you know how many things that people say they believe and they end up doing the opposite? Or you know how many times people say they don't believe something and then end up doing the opposite? I love that line in the Gospels. Um, I think it's, uh, I don't remember who says it. Someone maybe who wants to be healed or something like that says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now that's the kind of thing that is on the edge of faith. Or is faith itself. That's an admission that I say I believe, but actually it it's just cover up for my deep and profound unbelief. Here's a line from Jung, Carl Jung. He says, Fanaticism is nothing but overcompensate overcompensated doubt. <laughs> so fanaticism, and, and and now I'll add to it, certainty, I know that he believed, is often over Compensated doubt. So I think part of growing up psychospiritually is involves the process of of relaxing into that kind of doubt. Lord, I believe help my unbelief, or I believe and I don't believe, or I believe and I believe it has some meaning, but I also believe that my beliefs (laughs) have limits. That's approaching something a lot more complex and a lot more interesting, which leads to the next question of okay. Regardless of its historicity, what does it mean? What is it revealing? What is it saying psycho-spiritually? What's it saying on the level of symbol, image, and truth? Truth with a capital T, um, which is way more interesting than truth with a small t, which is historical facts. The, The funny thing about historical facts is the thing that everybody is convinced is absolutely a fact. We have proven it. Based on our careful research, you know, five years later, a new piece of data comes in and the whole thing gets turned on its head. So um, it's something the ego loves because it can can get its head around it. But I think, in my view, there is a truth that's deeper than our attachments to things being historical or not. And the story of death and resurrection leads us in that direction, as you'll see, I think, as the story unfolds here. So I I want to use two stories. One I'll just refer to and the other one I'll read that that has to do with resurrection. So we can poke around in the meaning here. At least ask questions about the meaning. The first comes from Paul. Now, what I think many people forget because of, you know, 1700 years of Christendom is that the Gospels... Are not the oldest accounts if you want the oldest accounts of uh, or oldest stories of someone in relationship to the risen Christ you have to go to Paul himself Paul is much older than the Gospels by 30 40 50 years he's writing and what's interesting about Paul is that he never met Jesus was not a disciple. He didn't follow Jesus around Galilee. He never saw any of the miracles. He never heard any of the teachings. More than that, he never read any of the gospels. They weren't written yet. He, it's possible that he never even saw a single source because their um, scholars come up with something they call quellit or source or sources that preceded the gospels. It's a theory and it's it's a pretty good one but something like a source source material material was used it's possible and likely that Paul didn't even have access to that all he had was maybe some stories from Peter but most importantly he had his own experience and that gets a little um hard to get at too because part of paul's experience is recorded in the in the book of acts which is not written by paul also many many decades after paul's death so that's a bit of a um there are already several layers uh beyond the life of paul in in the book of acts and scholars would say okay the story of the road to damascus we need to take with a bit of a grain of salt here because it's not straight from paul so let's Let's at least say, well, what did Paul say about resurrection? And one of the famous lines, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then our faith is meaningless. I'm paraphrasing a bit, which people say, all right, then therefore we have to believe in the physical resurrection. So Paul is poking around in something, and I don't want to minimize that. He's saying, no, there's something to uh, resurrection that sits at the very core of this spirituality, this movement, this way of being in the world that Paul has some experience with. And that's what I'm going to argue. He has an experience or some kind of experience with this resurrected Christ. So resurrection must matter. Again, when we're talking about the molecular level, I I don't know if that's super helpful at this point because these documents are, you know, it's 1,500 years before even the very beginnings of Of scientific inquiry so they have to be held a little bit differently but definitely Paul is saying something central to this is rooted in the symbol of resurrection and in that he says that this is I think from Corinthians if I'm not mistaken but he says that Jesus appeared to Peter and James and and if you look at Paul's other texts he's he talks about when he went up to Jerusalem and met with them so in other words confirming this he heard it from them confirming these uh, resurrection stories. and then he says lastly he appeared to me so paul out of his own mouth i think in corinthians he says jesus appeared to me now he doesn't say much about that and so you have to kind of combine that with acts and a couple of other texts that describe some kind of what i would call mystical encounter and if we take the 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 story in acts just at face value uh, something of the resurrected Christ appears and blinds Paul which is just so richly symbolic in other words it gives him the physical experience of his own of his own spiritual point of view look how blind you are you are blind and he has to stumble around for three days just like the um 3 days in the tomb and then something like scales fall from his eyes and, and and he realizes he's wrong he's wrong about this figure and what Jesus says to him according to acts is why do you persecute me paul why why, why are you coming after me you're um you're you're attacking the wrong thing here and s- so that maybe with another one that Um, Paul says he was taken up to the third heaven again, and he says, I can't tell you anything about it. That's another kind of mystical encounter he has. The reason why I'm emphasizing that word and and also experience is because in my really simple threefold model of spiritual change, belief, faith, and experience, Paul's going through something like this. He has certain beliefs about who Jesus is, namely, um, maybe a false messiah-like figure that will is leading people astray and they're telling things that aren't true about him And he was killed by the Romans whatever his storyline was they were really firmly held beliefs he was fanatical about them thus obviously suppressing his doubt and quickly very quickly he's blinded so this is a kind of more radical uh, encounter and he moves into the realm of the unknown. I don't know what I'm talking about, and has to stumble around for a few days. And if you do all the math with Paul, it says something like 14 years later he goes up to visit Peter and James. James is the brother of Jesus, and Peter is, as in the the main disciple or one of them at least. And, and which is quite a long time period of transition and change. And shortly thereafter, after this encounter, he becomes what we think of as kind of Paul the preacher wandering around the Roman Empire telling the story of Jesus. And anyway, he enters the realm of faith, particularly in those three blind days. He does not know what he's talking about. And the experience that experiences that he has radically changes him, and the cycle starts again. And his beliefs now have to be reformulated, and, and um, they're reconstituted, but not in their previous form. And maybe something like the cycle continues with him. The reason why I'm bringing him up is because, first of all, he gets a bad rap, and and I, anytime I think people are dismissive of of someone like Paul, I think let's let's try to find out, let's dig deeper. So um, that's one reason. But the second is he he has potentially an experience that perhaps is at the very core of the symbolic possibilities hidden in the image of resurrection. It's kind of a long sentence. He experiences what is potentially the experience of every person connected in one way, shape, or form to this Christ figure. He doesn't experience an anomaly. And I'm not saying right now that Jesus is going to appear to you as you're like on the way to work and be like, hey, why do you persecute me? Maybe that would be awesome. You should ask him like what he's been up to if he does that. But my main point is something like encounter or experience with the resurrected Christ is the very heartbeat of this new movement. You can experience something of the resurrected Christ that is a way different possibility than you should believe certain things happen to this man namely he resurrected from the dead those are really different things they're not mutually exclusive by any way shape or form but what's so amazing about Paul is he believed that Jesus did not resurrect from the dead and he has this encounter so again, do your beliefs about it really matter all that much? And what can we say about what's what's being imagined here as a possibility? And I'm going to use contemporary language because it's kind of everybody sort of talking about it. And when I say everybody, I mean those like in kind of spiritual-ish, um, contemplative circles, Christian circles. Something like Christ awareness or Christ consciousness Paul bumps into not only in these encounters which then which is a, one thing maybe you could say he's experiencing Christ consciousness but maybe he's experiencing Christ like it, as a kind of um radical um it turning over the tables of who he thinks he is and the invitation then for Paul is then to embody that way of being that way of seeing now what we might think of as Christ consciousness. And this is why Paul can end up saying things like Um, Christ lives in me. Not I but Christ. So there's there's an emergence, there's a kind of merging with this divine symbol, an embodiment. Um, which by the way, let me just if I'm getting sounding way too Christian, let me throw in a little Buddhism for a second. If you think about the 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 Buddha. As being a man or series of men that's one very narrow historical reading but that's not really what Buddhism teaches that that you too can participate in Buddha mind you too are the Buddha and can be the Buddha and something like that and I'm not making this up and I don't think this is uh, uh, an unfair kind of like new-agey pleasant thought but something like that is at the very root of the Christian story or, or at least the mystical Christian story, which is you too can experience the mind of Christ. And that's straight from Paul. You can experience and embody and put on and and live out the mind of Christ. And what is meant by that, maybe in fresh fresher language, is something like Christ consciousness. And, and of course you have to ask, what is that? Now, I know Richard Rohr has a new book on Christ consciousness. I think this is... Um, if you don't know, Richard Rohr is struggling again with health issues. And in some ways, this this could be his last contribution. So even more so, I want to pay attention to it. I haven't read it yet, um, but I will. And I don't know, to be at the end of your life and say what we ought to be talking about right now in the 21st century is Christ consciousness. And so I, I trust Richard Rohr on that level. And I think he's, he's not only uh, pulling from the deep, tradition saying beneath all this the wisdom tradition has always been something like christ consciousness going all the way back to paul if you want to put it that way or before Um, but that something about the future of how we are related to the story um, has to be infused with this christ consciousness it can no longer just be um, a tribal story based on doctrines and beliefs that we say we hold and anybody who doesn't hold them is not one of us this is not getting us anywhere um, or it's maybe it's gotten us so far but it's not going to carry us very far into the future now i'm not quite done with paul so i want to come back to this really um if you're like a, a really progressive um christian or maybe you've left the faith altogether and maybe some of that had to do with i don't really think this you know st- stuff literally happened and uh, you know so i'm, I'm kind of out of here let's let's take a Let's take another stab at this um, line of Paul's where he says, if there's no resurrection, then our faith is kind of mute. There's no point to any of this. And um, just uh, try to turn it like the way you would turn a gem in different directions to see if he might be saying something else or that and something. And anyway, I mean, we. <laughs> I remember in... In graduate school, realizing for the first time—I mean, it was really like a like a revelation, like a Damascus Road experience—and here was the revelation: I don't have to agree with Paul, like, and because that was so, sort of the theological pressure—I have to get the reading right of him, because so much of Christianity, especially when it comes to beliefs and doctrines, is rooted in the statements of Paul and certain interpretations of those statements. But I'll, it was like like a giant weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I don't even have to agree with the guy. Now that doesn't mean I shouldn't take him seriously. And actually the opposite happened. The moment I said, I don't have to agree with him, then the more interested I became. All right, then what is he talking about? And where am I wrong? And where, where do I think he is wrong? And where, you know, where, where is he right? And I don't, didn't really see that before. Anyway, concerning this statement, if there's no resurrection our faith is meaningless. Um, what I find interesting, and a little bit of a historical background here, is that the Pharisees believed in physical resurrection, as far as we know. We know that from the Gospels, we also know that from a few other sources. Um, and that that was a relatively new phenomenon in what could be called Judaism, or the emergence of Judaism. And even the New Testament tells us that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection of the dead. So it was a debate. It wasn't a done deal, which is, that alone should tell you um, that Judaism and then what emerged as Christianity was hotly and lively debated. And as it should be, as all kind of ideas and beliefs should um be challenged and questioned and doubted and turned over and and they should bump into their opposites that's part of how you find out what's true in them and what's not uh but anyway the first century turned out to be a pretty interesting time period and the pharisees believed in a physical resurrection and there are a couple of different texts in the in the in the hebrew bible that seem to allude to this like the valley of dry bones and ezekiel where they he's sort of musing poetically imagining that that these the bones of the the Jewish people will be kind of reconstituted and they'll come back into uh their homeland and whatever it's it's a complicated and very intriguing text and one temptation is to read that quite literally i call it a temptation because um any kind of poetry begs interpretation so it's sort of saying interpret me that's the challenge of any Uh, poetic text and that text along with I mean scholars say the influence of some other um, I don't want to get into tons of cultural background information but perhaps influences outside of the uh, Old Testament Hebrew scripture even Jewish traditions that were influenced the, the idea that there is such a thing as an afterlife because it's not really in the Old Testament there's not an afterlife and if there is an afterlife what is the nature of it that's the next question and The Pharisees, which Paul was a Pharisee, that's why I'm bringing this up, believed that, oh no, um, there is uh, a physical resurrection and we'll be sort of reunited in a sense with our body, which made burial very, very important. And in Judaism, you want to collect all of the body parts, all of the bones, and put them in a single tomb because you don't want to be missing a piece upon resurrection. That was the idea. And that sounds a bit silly, but it's really not. It's, It's communicating something quite powerful which is what I think is is kind of amazing. So the Greeks, very roughly speaking, and again, saying the Greeks believed is a little like saying the Jews believed. It depends on what Greek you were talking to, I, I imagine. But there was a kind of separation between body and soul in Hellenistic Greek thought. And if there was an afterlife, that was the place where the soul went and the body did not. There's a split. And even Gnosticism in Christianity, which um, the Gnostic texts are, are precede Christian Gnosticism, very much has a this kind of splitness. I know the Gnostics have some interesting things to offer, and a lot of um, maybe you've bumped into some Gnostic stuff. If you're into contemplative Christianity, but let's just keep it at the separation level right now. They're big time dualism, body and soul, totally separate. And even in really, I was going to say hardcore Gnosticism. (laughs) The problem, by the way, with the Gnostics is most of what we know of them come from their enemies, which means we don't know all that much about them. But one of the things that um, that comes from them was the idea that um, that the flesh itself, the body, and even the physical creation was created by a negative um, or evil God. And then there is the good God that create created everything that's pure and spirit. And so that idea preceded Christianity and works its way into, even to, perhaps into some of Paul's writings with the flesh-spirit split that he seems to have, um, but the reason why I'm bringing that up is that the Greek slash Gnostic idea that these are totally separate is not really a part of Pharisaic Judaism. And Judaism, I think, offers something very unique and lays the groundwork for what Christians would call the Incarnation. And that is the body matters. The body matters. How you live in your body every day in the most ordinary sense is your spirituality that's why Judaism is so obsessed with laws that are concrete that have to do with the body everything from do you wash your hands to where do you go to the bathroom to um, what happens during your, your monthly period um, if you're a woman um, what kind of clothes do I wear um, how do I how do I wash my body um, in other words, spirituality is not abstracted out from the concrete realities of of the body, the body, the body, which in some ways is such a relief to to, to those of us who get kind of caught up into the, the cycles of the mind and sort of fly higher and higher and higher like Icarus toward the sun until our wings melt and we crash back down to earth. Judaism is very earthy, and to say the physical body matters and the physical um, ness of our body is the thing that needs to be resurrected, which is another way of communicating the opposite from the Greek notion, which is the body and the soul are one. Body, soul, mind, one. Um, I mean, in a way, as I think about it just now, it's in the Shema, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your body, with every everything that you have. There's a kind of unity, um, and and again, it's kind of a philosophical idea, I suppose, but is communicated in sort of the spirituality of Judaism. That is a great gift. We need more of that in the world. I personally think less splits, more integration, and it's so funny to me that Christianity can just go yes jesus had to physically re- resurrect but then our ideas about the afterlife almost have nothing to do with that idea which is my body goes into the ground and my soul flies up to god where you know maybe i get a kind of body but we we've we kept the dualistic gnostic greek split um unlike um, what what was originally in the streams of the first century pharisaic approach anyway I don't know if that's interesting to you or not. It's a, I mean, it's, like, it's interesting to me, so I hope at least something in there is interesting to you. What else can we say about that? I think we can say there would be no doctrine of the incarnation without this, I think, Pharisaic, um, rabbinic, Jewish intuition. Meaning, when I say incarnation, what I mean is God dwells in flesh. That the divine is at home in the ordinary, in the body, in bodily functions, in the in the crassness and humanness and beauty of the human form. That's the miracle of the incarnation. That's what the incarnation is communicating. And we also have to ask on the level of symbol, what does that have to do with us? Because the the deepest mystery of Christianity is that Something of the divine dwelled in Christ, and something of the du- divine dwells in you. The the incarnation happens again. I mean, that is Christianity's most radical, the most unbelievably radical egalitarian democratic um, messiness. That's the what Christianity at its best, seems to be communicating that even in our ordinary messiness, something of the divine dwells again, or is embodied, or is incarnated. And to come into greater contact with this incarnation, in a way, is to have the Christ consciousness, the same consciousness of Christ. Remember, Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and I pray that they, meaning you and I, may be one as we are one, that the union, the kind of transcendent union, uh, at the heart of the the Christ symbol is can be embodied and embraced and lived in the ordinariness of our life. Not in some, I'll fly away someday and my soul will zip on up there to to God and kind of hang out. but no the the incarnation is to live again that That's where I think Christianity is crazy radical. So my opening question was, What's the meaning of resurrection? Well, you know, in a Pauline sense, the meaning of the resurrection is that, I think, something like we can experience the same cycle, the same blindness to sight, the same death to resurrection, the same buried in the tomb to new life from our ordinary, egoic, selfish, self-interested um, narcissistic egocentric consciousness to a wider field like rilke says i live my life in widening circles that move out across the world and around the cycle it comes and something of our own consciousness widens to use christian language widens into more of the mind of christ or christ consciousness greater and greater expansion including more and more and more and embodying more and more of the divine in the ordinary that's how um to use Rilke's metaphor, that move out across the world. So I'm sort of mixing the two images here. The meaning of the resurrection is that you can experience something of it, and something of the risen Christ can be experienced. It might even be possible that you might have a Damascus Road experience with Christ consciousness and not even call it Christ, but some kind of falling away of the scales um, to see the world the way it really is and to see that the divine is not separate. That the soul and the body uh, and, and the spirit, there's a kind of um, seed of possibility and also the reality of, of integration and union. There it is. Okay, which um, leads me to, to bring in two other um, uh, patterns. At this point. And this is something I started playing with a couple of years ago. I was teaching at my friend uh, Ryan Meeks's church in Seattle, or it's not in Seattle, but near Bothell and East Lake Community Church, amazing place. I'll be there again this summer. We'll be doing a retreat together. So there, there's a little plug. Uh, and anyway, I, I started, I, I found myself saying something. Every once in a while I say something and, and it feels like, oh, where did that emerge from? And it sort of was, an, was, there are several tributaries that have led me to this. So, and here's the statement. There are two meta narratives in the great stories, meaning the myths, the fables, the biblical, biblical literature. There are two stories that I think are in some ways interwoven, but they have sort of separate qualities. And the first is the hero's journey that Joseph Campbell made so famous. And I know, whew, we almost are sick of hearing about the hero's journey if you're in certain circles. And it's so easily misused and um, and misunderstood, I think, most of the time. But nevertheless, it's there. And if you don't like the word hero, the journey, the journey itself from A to B. And what does that look like? Journeying out into the unknown, often a kind of descent Uh, Down into the abyss, a dismemberment, an unraveling, a series of trials, of tests, of of temptations, and some kind of gift being found in the midst of the darkness and being brought back to serve not the person but the community. That's the hero's journey. Or to come back up and experience a kind of union, oneness um, uh, with the divine even, especially according to Joseph Campbell. So descent to the underworld and an, and an ascent to the upper world, but it has this down and up quality, which we find all over the place. We find in the biblical narrative. We find in the Abraham story, leave your father, your household, um, your people, go to a land I will show you, a series of trials and difficulties. And, and Abraham's a not very cleaned up character. He lies and he gets things wrong, but he also tries to stay on the path and keep going and keep going and keep going, and he has something like a gift that he not only offers um, his immediate family, but in the in the broadest sense, all the descendants on earth. That's the Abraham narrative. That's a hero's journey. Jesus has a hero's journey. He leaves his father, his the mother, his brothers. They think he's crazy. He Um, wanders into the wilderness, he follows a weird guy named John the Baptist, he has his own movement, he goes through a series of trials and temptations, he goes down to the abyss, down to the underworld, down to hell itself, and comes out with some kind of gift. And the gift is the resurrection, the resurrection of a greater, um, wider way of being in the world, that love, in this sense, is greater than hatred, or or, uh, hatred can can be forgiven or um or the burden of just being a human being god says that's okay you know these are all part of now we start to get into slightly theological interpretations of that it's definitely a hero's journey it's a journey story that's one of them the other is the life death life cycle and life death life cycle stories are less journey oriented And what kind of turned me on to these sort of dual narratives is reading a lot of Joseph Campbell and reading a lot of Women Who Run With the Wolves. This is Clarissa Pinkola Estates. I I probably butchered her name, so I'm sorry for that. Um, A little bit of humility on my part. Um, Women Who Run With the Wolves is a series of myths and stories that are much more about the feminine... The archetypal feminine, and I think a lot of what Joseph, Joseph Campbell uses, not exclusively, is a little more of the archetypally masculine story. Journey, hero, women who run with the wolves is a little more of the feminine archetype. And at the very center of that, according to her, is the life-death-life cycle. It's this around and around and around again it happens once a month in a woman's body it happens in the moon dies and is reborn um and the stories have those qualities and you in fact you can go through the kind of life death life cycle without ever going on a so-called giant journey where you're going out to tackle the dragon and I, i think this is really amazing because um I mean, I probably should just make a whole podcast just on these two uh, meta narratives uh, that I think are are at the very core of some of our best stories. But what's kind of interesting to me about the Jesus story is that there are elements of both. It is a hero's journey and it is a life, death, life cycle. I mean, even um, birth, uh, death, rebirth, which Jesus says you must be born again, is a little like the life, death, life cycle. And. And the resurrection itself can be read in this kind of archetypally feminine way of the cycles, the natural cycles of what happens, which can be read on the symbolic level of what happens to our own consciousness and our own way of being and our own way of growing up. It is a series of death, of birth, death, birth, death, and, a, uh, and on around like turning over the soil. And the Jesus story contains a bit of, a bit of both of, those elements. And I think there's something actually really interesting about Jesus when it comes to the masculine and the feminine, because um, I think there are elements of Jesus archetypally uh, containing both a lot of masculine energy, turning over tables, going on journeys, and a lot of feminine energy. A lot of Jesus' time is spent at the table, at the dining room table, eating meals, holding people's hands, touching people, holding people, healing people, and um, much more in the uh, in the uh, f- uh, feminine archetype, and, it, and and I don't want to be too crass here, but um, again, you have to think. I think about the image. Masculine tends to be a going forward kind of uh, penetration, um, and th- the the archetypally feminine tends tends to be about reception. Openness and receiving. And you see both of those in the Christ image, which is, I think, one of the reasons why it becomes a world religion. If it was too masculine, it wouldn't become a world religion. And if it was too feminine, it probably wouldn't become a world religion. Needs a bit of both. Um, And one of the things that seriously increases the feminine... um, Uh, streams of the Christ story is the figure of Mary Magdalene and also Mother Mary, uh, Jesus's mom. These become, especially um, Jesus's mother, uh, because that that becomes a global symbol, you know, pretty quickly uh, in a surprising sense, because you can't have, you can't have a religion that is so one-sided. You need masculine and feminine, just like, because it's an image of of what our own psyche is like. Everyone's psyche has a masculine and feminine component. Everybody, everybody, everybody. And integration looks like um, integrating the counter-sexual archetype, counter-sexual element of our own psyches. The animus and the anima, to use Jungian language. And to cut yourself off from that is to live half a life and not really know who you are and then expect some magical other person to, you know... Um, meet all your needs and and make you whole and complete you have a kind of completeness and and i think part of our psycho-spiritual responsibility is to find ways to say yes to that kind of integration anyway of, i've kind of (laughs) uh, let's bring it back here what's amazing about mary magdalene is that she is the first witness to the resurrection. She's the first to experience the resurrected Christ. Or if you want to take it further, she's the first to experience Christ consciousness in its resurrected form. Not Peter, not James, not John, not the bigwigs, not Paul, but a woman named Mary Magdalene. And I I think this is a, a, a pretty compelling I mean it might not be convincing to you but it's at least a compelling argument for um, the historicity of this is that um, in when the gospels were, were being written the testimony of a, of a male in Roman culture greco-roman world was considered better or greater than the testimony of a woman. so why would you have a series of encounters with the resurrected Christ first coming to a woman just leave it out, you know? If you wanted to try to prove that it happened, I'm not even saying that was their motivation, but it would make for a cleaner story if you could have Peter be the first person. But actually, Peter is not, and he doesn't really believe it, and many of the disciples don't believe it, but it's Mary Magdalene, which tells you something that they that Jesus and Mary had a very close relationship. You should read some Cynthia Bourgeau if you want you know, to open up the, the floodgates with Mary Magdalene and how to read her. And how she's been read in the tradition and what she still has to offer to contemplative Christianity. So she's your source, Cynthia Bourgeau. But um, anyway, Jesus appears first to Mary Magdalene. I want to read just a bit of the story because, um, at least from the Gospel of John, listen to this account. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And I've said this before. I think in this podcast, and, and I'm getting, I'm also working on a new book or what might become an audio book, and I've been talking about grief itself as one of the great doorways to transformation, and and Mary is in the doorway of grief, which which means she's much more um, supple, receptive, broken down. Those who refuse to grieve often are those who can't grow up, even out of you know, um, traumatic circumstances or difficulties. Those who can't grieve can't grow out of it. And she's already on the, the very next day deep in grief. And it says, And, and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said. And I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not realize it was Jesus, which is very interesting. I mean, let's just say they were super close. I mean, you could go so far as to say, you know, in the sort of conspiracy theorist world that they're, you know, were a thing. They were, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, married. uh, um, It it doesn't imply that in the text, but definitely there's kind of intimacy there that is way more than... um, like waving at your neighbor, you know, when, when you, you know, see them mowing their lawn or something. She doesn't recognize Jesus, and I think, again, we want to always be be asking, what's what, what possibility does this image serve symbolically? Well, it's saying something like you can see and not see, and. You can hear the voice of Jesus, but not recognize the voice of Jesus, or you can be so um, blinded by your previous attachments to your beliefs and ideas about Jesus that you can't see what's right in front of your face. That's a lot of Christianity refusing to grow up, saying, no, it has to be exactly what I was told, exactly like this. It had to happen like this 100%. That's like Jesus saying to you, hey, why are you crying? And you're not recognizing him. You're like, what are you talking about? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. So not only does she not recognize Jesus, she thinks Jesus is somebody else. And I want to open up that, I want to actually blow this text up in a second with something that Richard Rohr said, but I want to hold on to it for just a second. Again, as far as the the simple reading of the story, she doesn't recognize him. And, And actually she... She thinks he's somebody that he's not, which is very intriguing to me. Jesus said to her, Mary. So there's a, he, he says something that is so beautiful, just like your personal name. Jesus does this one other time in the Gospels when he's talking to a demon-possessed man where he says, what's your name? What's your name? I mean, think about, think about how the sort of the the barriers that we that our ego puts up between us and the other and even a simple question like hey what's your name those dissolves those barriers i mean i meet a lot of people i've been in kind of public roles for a long time and when i was a mega church pastor i mean it's like i met a mega amount of people and I, I just did met in air quotation marks i recognized a lot of people and and i'm not great with names or i'm not as good as other people at least as far as i know it could be just a story that I'm telling myself. But when I had the humility to say, what's your name? It's like something dissolved in me and in the other person. And and then to remember that person's name and to say, Mary, is to... to It's like a wake-up call. Oh, yeah, we we have a kind of connection, a kind of intimacy, a kind of depth. And that's what's happening here. I mean, this is such a beautiful... And I think it's just amazing. Like, there's a... <laughs> Take it as a historical fact for a second. Jesus resurrects from the dead, and the first thing he does is say somebody's name. Not like, hey, check it out, man. You know, nobody can keep me down in the tomb. He just, he goes straight for a level of intimacy with the feminine right out of the gates. I th- to me, that is a beautiful image. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, which you can also read as in Hebrew, Um, Rabboni and that is pure Hebrew Hebrew and Aramaic are are related but let's not get into the weeds here Rabboni which is first person possessive my rabbi is what she's saying and the first person possessive is actually the piece of evidence if you're wondering did Jesus really have female disciples yeah if you want to be a literalist about the text absolutely she says is my rabbi it's first person possessive and and maybe it's more than that. I mean, it's just like, no, I mean, you are my teacher on the deepest level here. You've gone from being kind of a really amazing public healer, prophetic figure to, no, you are my guide. Um, y- you're the way that I've stumbled into that is taking these blinders off. Um leading me inviting me into uh, into the widening sphere of consciousness jesus says do not hold onto me for i've not yet ascended to the father do not cling i like that translation don't cling to me and I, I mean just think about the the difference between gripping your fingers that kind of clinginess and the opposite which is to relax your grip don't cling don't hold on to me Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. See how inclusive Jesus is? My father and your father. Not my father and the rest of you guys can like watch me up there or something like that. But um, y- using using the father image as a metaphor for God here, he's saying eh, you're included in this too. Um, to my God and your God, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Uh, that's the dawning of Christ consciousness here. And and he's giving it away. He's not holding on to it. I think that's what's so interesting about Jesus. It, it, if I had this experience of of union with the Father, I might want to turn it into a kind of exclusivity. I had this experience and none of you did, so you need to come to me and I'll tell you what the experience is like. Jesus is constantly trying to give it away. My Father's is the same as yours, and my God is the same as as yours. And... I think the the clinging business here is, um, at least in some respects, the, the linchpin of this text when it comes to the meaning of resurrection here. So what is the meaning? What's one way of talking about the meaning of resurrection? So she has an experience of the resurrected Christ. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And... And it's not easy. We don't know exactly what it means. It might mean a number of things, but there's something about this text that I think is so profound. And it has to do with, I think, the dying and the falling away of Mary Magdalene's own expectations about who Jesus was and what she needed him to be. And I think we could extrapolate from there and say that's probably true of all the disciples, especially Peter, you know, you're going to be, you're the Messiah, we're going to do awesome things, and the other disciples, I'm going to be on your left and right, and all their apocalyptic um, intuitions and hopes and dreams for some sort of physical kingdom where we're going to kick everybody's ass, that's what has to die. Mary Magdalene's version, we don't know exactly, but she's clinging. She's saying, "Who, who you have been to me, I want to hold on to. And Jesus says, You can't. You can't. What you've believed about me in the past, you gotta let die. You have to leave it here at the foot of the tomb, which is the image of the burial of the old way of being in the world. It's the image of the abyss where you go down and you really, 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 really wrestle um with your own doubts and darkness and demons. Um and your habits and your misgivings and your misfortunes and your and your regrets and hangups and um, and your resentment and and something about that goes into the tomb and you can't cling to either those old ways anymore and you can't cling to your old image of me. In other words, I took you this far and it turns out to just be a beginning. Don't hang on to the old Jesus. Don't do it. Because that kind of clinging is possessive, it's needy, it's small-minded, and it's egocentric. I need. I remember one time, um, I was in a I was in an elders meeting for church, and and and. One of the elders was saying something like, I feel like you're taking my church away from me. We're arguing about LGBT stuff. And I was like, first of all, it's not yours and neither is it mine. But that is the same mentality. And I've been guilty of it, too. I'm picking on somebody, but um, I've been guilty of the same thing. You're taking my Jesus away from me. I need my Jesus to be My Jesus says, that's Mary Magdalene clinging. He says, don't do it. You got to let me go. Because to do so is to enter faith, is to, is to go to the limits of your beliefs and cross that threshold into the possibility of faith, which means the possibility of the unknown. What do you not know about, this, about the, the Christ figure? What do you not know about um, the future? Well, everything. <laughs> what do you not know about where this journey into the unknown might take you? Well, you don't. And that's part of the adventure. And the moment uh, you begin to loosen your grip and find yourself in the deeper streams of the unknown, which I would call faith, the moment your experience begins to change. And you end up not having the experiences you had before, but something else. And thus the cycle turns back around again. So even in life-death-life imagery in the feminine, this clinging, letting go, clinging, letting go, which we all participate in in our own way, um, you see right here in this scene, and he says don't don't hang on to me and she doesn't she says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news i've seen the lord i've i've seen i at first he was staying there and I didn't recognize him but i've i've seen I've seen the resurrected Christ, which is different than the guy who died and was put in the tomb and she told them that he had said these things to her now, there are lots of other accounts, but this is the one that I was most interested in. Now, I've been a fan of uh, Richard so I'm about to popularize something that he said. And so credit where credit is due. And, and I've listened to a lot. And I mean a lot. He was like, oh, my God. When I was in graduate school, when I was in Israel, I mean... I had an iPod, like one of the old school ones with the swirly thing, and I had on a few of his teachings, and I would just listen to them again and again. I started to fall in love with his voice even, and, and to trust his voice and his way of putting things And in. um, He introduced me to David White. First time I ever heard a David White poem was from Richard Rohrer. He introduced me to loads of mystics I've never heard. He introduced me to the cataphatic and the adiphatic. I just, now all these teachings are popping into my head that were on that silver iPod that I carried around and used as I rode the bus to class and whatever. Um, And I've heard a lot of what he says and 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 like any good teacher even Jesus he repeats himself and does so with slightly different nuances and I don't know you end up hearing where I think I heard him say that before but it just took on a slightly different color and now I'm really hearing it that's like um, perhaps that's a little like um, not seeing Jesus (laughs) and thinking he's the gardener you know something like that happens with a good teacher and anyway, he's been that for me. And um, so last year, I guess at the living school, this is Richard Rohr school, and, and my wife uh, goes to the living school, and she was at a conference where where Rohr, Rohr was teaching. And this is what he said about this text: <laughs> Someone read the verse, or he or he read the verse, It said, um, thinking he was the gardener, he said, "That's because he was," which. It's almost like one of those, like, uh, what is the sound of one hand clapping sort of koan uh, that you have in Zen Buddhism? That actually the gardener was Jesus or Jesus was the gardener. Actually, I like the gardener was Christ. She was seeing the gardener and and in the gardener, she saw the resurrected Christ. I think he was saying something like that, which he's never said before. That was radical. My wife texted me this. I was like, What? And, and suddenly, it was like a whole nother way of understanding what is meant by Christ consciousness began to sort of just crack, the door just to start crack open just a tiny bit. Maybe the experience of the resurrected Christ might start with like an image or, an, or, or a ghost or an apparition or a nighttime visitation or a dream where you see a figure and that figure is Christ and Christ says why are you persecuting me and you're blinded maybe it's something like that and maybe other times it's something like something of Christ's consciousness is coming through this human being i e the gardener i see Christ in this image and i'm actually seeing Christ and i'm 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 exchanging words with this kind of christ consciousness now what am i saying i I mean it's it's i'm not exactly sure but that's why i'm saying the door is just started to crack open a bit i think for too long we've tried to confine the idea of christ to a human historical figure that's what christ is but christianity in its most mystical stream says no christ dwells in all and is in all that's what paul says That's the dawning of a totally radical way of seeing the world, that something of the divine dwells in all and is all. And I think Mary Magdalene perhaps has a taste of it. Is it the gardener? Is it Christ? Maybe the answer is something like yes. But I think what would be really amazing, if we could go back in time, and there we are, we're sitting there in the garden, we're just, you know, minding our own business, playing chess with a friend. And we look over and we see Mary Magdalene talking to the gardener. That's what we see, and later on, we say, "Hey, who were you talking to?" She says, "I was talking to Christ." I think that kind, perhaps something like that, was happening. We don't know. Again, I was not there, so something like that was potentially the case. And as I think about it, as I was thinking about it this week, and um, and and I, I, I was suddenly reminded of a teaching of Jesus, a parable of Jesus. Well, I don't know if it's a parable. It's more just like um, an analogy, I guess, of the sheep and the goats. Jesus tells this story in Matthew where he says, um, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, again, you could ask, what is that? But we'll leave that for now. He will separate the sheep from the goats. And it says, the king will say to those on his right, the sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. Take the thing that you're longing for. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. So um the sort of the, the deepest longings for is coming out in a metaphor here for the kingdom what you what you've been longing for what your heart and soul has been longing for is now yours and this is why for i was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink i was a stranger and you invited me and in. i needed clothes and you clothed me i was sick and you looked after me i was in prison and you came to visit me the righteous will say, "When do we see you?" You know, we didn't see you doing any of these things. He says, "When do we see you a stranger invite you in or needing clothes or clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you?" The king will reply, "Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the one of le- the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me." That is out of the mouth of Jesus. <clears throat> that is a seed planted in among the disciples about the nature of Christ consciousness, that the divine, the divine indwelling, the capacity for even greater divine indwelling dwells in every single human being, especially among the least. And Jesus is saying in sort of strange and mystical terms, when you uh, cared for the marginalized, I guess that would be a way of summarizing this, when you turned to the other and treated them just like a human being. You did that to me. That is very much like what I'm saying about this gardener in Christ. Is it? Was it the gardener or was it the resurrected Christ? The answer is yes. And when it comes to treating a fellow human being as a deeply, um, as as deeply as you can, as a sacred. Uh, incarnate dwelling of the divine even for a moment even visiting them one time turning your attention in that way is treating them as if they were christ and and by the way that doesn't um take away like well because there's a there's a side to that teaching that it sounds a bit weird to the contemporary ear like almost a bit condescending well i'll help you out because i'm really helping jesus i don't i don't think that's what's meant here i think it's way richer than that that um Something of, of, of the Christ is incarnate even in the most forgotten and neglected person. And if you can begin, and I think even begin to see the world that way, you're beginning to see with the eyes of Christ. So I want to try to um, land this plane, which I guess I've just been flying all over the place, like one of those little trick planes. And um, trying to at least get near the question of what is the meaning of resurrection. And and this week I was drawn again to uh, a passage by uh, Thomas Merton. And let me just look at my journal real quick. Because I wrote it down. Um, and I want to read it to you. Um, okay, here it is. A very famous passage. And... I guess what I'd like to say about it right from the beginning is that uh, this passage I was written um, uh, closer to the end of Thomas Merton's life. <coughs> Excuse me. And the reason why I'm bringing that in is the details that he'd been in the monastery a long time. He had committed himself to God and to separation and to holiness and to prayer and to silence. He was a st- Cistercian monk, so silence was, um, it's a silent order. And I guess in the cauldron of such severe discipline and uh, simplicity, uh, he was able to tap, or I should say the muse tapped him on the shoulder and he became one of the most prolific uh, voices for uh, mystical Christianity and for contemplative Christianity and for a a blending of the East and the West, of the great gifts of Buddhism um, and what that had to do with. The, the mystical streams of Christianity. And he just was like, it a, a, just, just flowed through him. Lots of texts. So here's one of the more famous ones that I think hints around at the kind of Christ consciousness that I think Mary Magdalene is, is experiencing, perhaps Paul, perhaps Paul experienced here at the beginning. And here it is in contemporary form. In Louisville, at the center of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, so not back in the Tidy Monastery, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people and that they were mine and I theirs. Do you hear that? It's just like Jesus. I'm going to my father and your father and um, my God and your God. And, and there, there's, there's a kind of intimacy here being expressed. I loved all those people. They were mine and I theirs. And we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. Which again, I can't help thinking of this Matthew chapter 25, you know, I was a stranger and you invited me in. And he's saying, the scales are falling away and and we're not aliens here, even though uh, we're strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness. And, And of course, if you know anything about Buddhism... Buddhism teaches about the illusion of separateness, that that it's part of the ego's game that everything is so separate that I, I, I am a separate individual. But there's a deep interconnectedness that you you don't really discover by your sophistication, but you stumble into, and it's more like waking from a dream. It it was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world. You might say, "Oh, yeah, that's the monastery—separation and isolation in a very special world." But is that not the path that that many of us are tempted to take? If I could just, if I could get out of the muddy, dirty, messy, complicated, you know, realities of my ordinary existence and go to a special place for me—that's like pristine nature, um, get away from it all. And there's certainly reasons to do that. Believe me. But sort of like if I could just elevate myself and transcend my ordinary reality, we're back to the Gnostic dualism. Um, That there's a special spiritual plane and I can leave my body. And I don't think that's what Thomas Merton is describing here. Um, He goes on of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. What a critique of his own choices. Man, that's someone who's At the doorstep of uh, really discovering some wisdom from experience. I tried to renounce everything in a kind of special, pseudo, hyper-spiritual holiness. And then he says this. This sense of liberation from illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that i almost laughed out loud i think that's a sign of some of the best spiritual insight it's funny it's when you when you when you're confronted by your own blindness i don't think you want to turn toward that with that shaming loyal soldier voice and say how stupid that i could have been so blind but it's almost funny like oh my god Waking from a dream, he almost laughs out loud. I have the immense joy of being human, he says, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. There's the mystery of incarnation in its deepest form here. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we are. And if only everyone could realize this, but it cannot be explained. There is no way of telling people that they are walking around shining like the sun. That seeing with the mind of Christ, I think, with Christ consciousness, with widening spheres moving out across the world, to quote Rilke again, man, I long for that kind of death and rebirth. I long for that kind of resurrection. Even to see the world like that for a moment, that's like waking from a dream. That's like being buried in a tomb for three days and getting up out of that tomb and being like, I can see, or I can see more clearly the world as it actually is. That's the mystery and the meaning of resurrection in psycho-spiritual terms. And I think that's at the very heart of these stories and why I think they need to be repeated every year. Not so we can feel good in a church service and say he's risen unlike your false gods or something like that, but that so that the possibility of the deeper streams of uh, and the archetypal powers and energies of the greatest symbols of that have ever dawned on humanity that we are born twice, once into this world as an ordinary waking egocentric self and something like being born again as possible into a widening sphere of consciousness, which Christianity happens to call Christ consciousness. God, that's why we need to repeat them every year because maybe something like that might actually happen. That's what I got for you today. Blessings, my friends. Peace be with you. May you have a momentary glimpse that the people around you are walking around shining like the sun.